everybody, and welcome to Real Crime Stories. This is episode number eight with Mike Heinrichs, one of the most highly decorated detectives in NYPD history. I'll just he had over 200 uh, department citations, but in that were what are known as line medals. And Mike had two combat crosses, which is almost unheard of, and totally unheard of is to also have two medals of valor. So he was uh, quite busy out there on the street, working the streets of uh, Brooklyn. And uh, today we're going to talk about not only Mike's career, but we're going to talk about a unit called anti-crime. And uh, I'm going to have Mike uh, tell you what the duties are of anti-crime, how they work, and why they're so important in a uh, city like New York to keep the crime down. Anyway, I'm your host, Bill Cannon, and I'd like to now introduce to you retired first grade detective, Mike Heinrichs. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Bill. Nice to see you again. Yeah, you're a frequent hello, flyer. Hello, everyone listening or watching or both. Well, okay. would, you tell, would you tell our audience, describe to them what is anti-crime? Okay, anti-crime is, um, is, is a precinct level unit uh, made up of some of the most highly motivated um, active street cops in the command. Um, we would... Uh, drive around in, in our unmarked cars, often disguised as uh, livery taxi cabs in Brooklyn, and we were in plain clothes. Uh, we were not undercover police officers. Everybody pretty much knew who they who we were, well, and, um, but we did have an advantage um, being the fact that our car was uh, unmarked, and by the time they realized that you know, we were on the scene, a lot of times it was too late. Uh, we basically were out there to suppress um, and deter uh, violent street crime. People carrying guns, uh, doing armed robberies, uh, gangs, shootings, and stuff like that. We were out there uh, to, um, you know, patrol. Uh, we were off the radio, um, so we didn't have to an answer 911 jobs. And our job was to go out there and look for bad guys carrying guns. And Mike, what, well, before you went out, uh, say you were doing a four to one, what, what type of preparation did you do before you went out onto the street? Uh, well, we would talk, we would look at 61s, you know, complaint reports, um, seeing what, you know, was what the trend was, what areas that were hot. Um, we were, con you know, in contact with the squad, the precinct detective squad that made it give it, you know, give us a heads up. You know, we had a little shooting, uh, you know, uh, over at five, four in church. Uh, we're expecting a retail any, any minute now, you know, that type of stuff. So, um, and Mike, I love I love you using the NYPD slang like retal. That means retaliation to yes. people right. in Scarsdale, New York. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so the squad would tell them, hey, they give us, you know, hey, you know, we're looking for so and so, we're out there, or this spot's hot, or you know, the rip guys would be tell the robbery guys would tell us, listen, we've been getting hit commercials, you know, down in this area. The precinct, the precinct was pretty much divided of of different areas within the command. You know, we had so the you, you were you're an educated cop. You don't go out there half baked, not knowing what's going on in that command. You know no. who you're looking for, right? Right. We had you an know, idea. You may you even know. bring some of the sixty back in the day. You may even bring some of the complaint reports with you to have yeah, you know, make did. copies of them. Now technology has raced ahead more. Uh, yeah, we, have we, didn't have, we didn't need technology. <laughs> you didn't we need just it. talked. To, we just talked to each other, communicated with each other, which is which is so so important, right? As well as our version of community policing, which was speaking to good people and store owners and getting a little help from them 
what was going on. People would, knowing, you know, the type of work we did and when we were effective, people would uh, be very responsive to us for the most part, good people. Okay, so what do you think for now, and not, I mean, to get too political, because we both know how important anti-crime is. In the long term, or even in the short term, what do you think the effects of not having an anti-crime unit would, will be in individual precincts, and then even in the bigger picture, in all of New York City? What do you think the effect of not having an anti-crime unit will be? I, I think slowly things are going to uh, creep back to when it was when I first started. Um, you know, you have to, you have to look at the, you know, the whole picture and realize that, um, uh, there has to be some sort of, um, line, you know, everybody, he's got these flags now, thin blue line. Do you really know, do people really know what it means? Um, there's people out that live in, you know, these neighborhoods that are, have high crime that, that need us there and, and, and want us there. Um, so that, that I mean, that's a, that's an important thing. I think, um. You know, although we had a lot of crime when I first started, by the time, you know, I had left anti-crime and went to the squad, you could see the numbers going down. You know, one thing, another thing I noticed that when I got into the robbery, when I got into the squad and worked in the robbery unit and later in homicide, um, how many crimes that, uh, that we prevented? Yeah. You know, you realize, you know, you go to a scene of a homicide, you're wondering, how did these guys get from point A to the homicide scene? If somebody would have pulled him over, this would have never happened. If somebody would have stopped the guy on the street carrying a gun. Maybe he wouldn't have got pissed off when, uh, you know, uh, at, at something stupid and just pulled out a gun and shot somebody. You know, Mike, that's what I, I don't think the politicians and some of the other folks who are pushing this police reform understand. I think it's in the state of Virginia. They're now banning cops from pulling over a car because they yeah. have an equipment problem. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Because... When you look at the the psyche of a perp, if he has a car and a headlights out, he's not going to get it fixed. He's a mutt. He's a criminal. Right. You know what I mean? And that gives the police reason to pull that car over right. to get a little more intrusive. You got a license? No. Got a registration? No. You have a lot, no. And a lot of crimes are committed by people who travel by a motor vehicle. Absolutely. You know, whether it's a stick up or a, you know a drug drug rip, uh, you know or, or a drug deal or, or, you know, just to go out, take, give me a ride over here so I can shoot somebody. I mean, that's how people get around for the most part, you know? And, and, and the thing is, is that the people that are making decisions said the politicians and the people that cried the loudest aren't the people that live in these neighborhoods. Never no. see them. They're not. They're the people, like I said, who realize that, you know what, I, I, I'm better off with these guys out there. The only winners in this thing are, are, are the, the jokers out there carrying guns. Yeah. You know, the good people in the neighborhood and the cops, don't, nobody nobody wins with this stuff. I mean, it, it, it's the perception. Um, not only, you know, uh, you figure a good person, you know, how, how would you feel if you're a citizen and you call the police because uh, somebody's running down the street with a gun and the police just drive by? Or they don't put their hands on the guy. Yeah. You know, how would you feel if, you, like I said, you're a 911 call and the police just don't do anything? How would you even feel if you're a, a perp carrying a gun and the cops just wave at you when you walk down the street? What kind it's of feeling? Pretty damn emboldened, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to say, uh, oh, nobody respects the police anymore. Nobody respects the police anymore. But what's, what's your idea of respect? You know, to have everybody love me? No, that wasn't it. You, you, you want to be a formidable, formidable uh, adversary. 
Absolutely. Want people to like, you know, that that line between me and and and, and you know, decent people um, is important. And not everybody realizes that, you know, you, I don't know. It's, it's you know, Mike, one of the things that we always, or at least I always harp on, on this show is it was such a huge thing when they changed jumping the turnstile from a theft of service misdemeanor to a civil matter. Right. That took so much authority away from the police to the point yeah. where I'm not, why would they enforce a civil matter or to get the, so it's, the person is going to, get a summons and they're not going to show up at court anyway. And chances are the city's going to dismiss it anyway. Right. And what, what jumping the turnstile gave them was something, as you know, search incidental for lawful arrest, right? right? You jump the turnstile. Okay. Now I got a free toss because you just broke the law. You're under arrest. Yeah. I've searched right. incidental. And where were they recovered? Guns, right? Because yeah. people yeah. that are carrying guns don't pay their fare. <laughs> you know? Oh, well, you know, why would they, you know? Why would anybody pay their fare now? That's what I like to know. And that's the sad part of it is, you know, uh, sad part of all this is that, uh, you know, it's like anything else though. You know, you look at, you know, you're, you're driving down, there's a sign on the road that says, you know, 55 miles per hour, right? Um, people don't drive uh, 85 because of the sign. They drive 55 because there's a trooper on the Cloverleaf that's going to give them a summons and, right. you know, make them pay. Right, exactly. You know? That that's that's the whole basis of this thing. So there has to be a perception that hey, if I'm carrying a gun, I got to watch out for the police. They're going to stop me. They're going to search me. They're going to find this weapon, and I'm going to go to jail. When you don't have that, it's total lawlessness. It, it's it's you know it's it's terrible. Well, even there has to be could something. You imagine, could you imagine some of the people that you arrested back in the day for a gun, and then you see them the next day out on the street because they were released because of bail reform. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's another ridiculous thing. I mean, uh, that's it's just a breakdown of, of, of civilization to me. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I mean, just think about that. You know, no bail. You know, no, you know, uh, you know, no no jail time. No, not even getting stopped to, to begin with. So even if you do get arrested, which is probably on a fluke, I guess these days you'd have to sort of like uh, you know uh, get arrested by accident, so to speak. Sad to say. Um, I, I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, wh wh why though? It just doesn't make any sense. And the people, the good people in these neighborhoods are the ones suffering. Yeah. And, and, and it's very sad, you know? Well, I had spoken to someone who runs um, the New York City boxing program for kids, uh, Pat Russo. And he was saying without mentioning names that a lot of these people that voted on the city council <laughs> for the diaphragm law didn't even realize what the hell they were voting for. No, now that's that not they, surprising. I would now think. that they did the damage, they're like, how can we undo this? Yeah. You know, well, you probably can't. It's going to yeah. have to take a lawsuit and legislation to, right. you know, and, and the state has the same stupidity, you know? I mean, yeah. when you yeah. think of, like, the, the elected officials, do they ask anyone in the police business, Is this, what, if, what are the ramifications if we do this? No, I mean, and even ask the people, you know, when you're in, in the neighborhood that you represent, they wouldn't do that. You know, they will get their agenda and they're going to turn around and say, you know, oh, look what we did. And, you know, people that don't live in these neighborhoods are going to make the rules for the people that do. I, I mean, it, it's it's ludicrous. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Well, you know, it's funny that, I, and I quote her a lot, uh, 
I don't know if, if I think it was Dr. Maki Haberfeld from John Jay, who's definitely a friend of the police. She was an Israeli police lieutenant, and she teaches at John Jay. And she, and she said, you know, in regards to, like, community policing, she said, why should the community be able to tell you how to do your job? And, I mean, that makes so much sense, you know. What other profession does the community get to tell the profession, we don't want you doing it this way, we don't want you doing it that way? But that's not really what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a partnership. Okay, if you're a good person that owns a business or lives in the community, you have a partnership with the police. You don't tell the pe police what to do and what not to do. Right, in a perfect you world, you're right, Mike, but it's become, it's become that. It's become right. the community telling the police what they want. I mean, you, you saw the shooting just the other day that's causing these riots in Philadelphia, right? Yes. It makes no sense. The guy was running at cops with a, with a knife. And yeah. then you get elected officials taking the side of the perp against the cops. When everything has failed that person up until that day, you know, from, from the person's own family to the education system, to the mental health system, to the, you know, uh, you know, school and, and, and the criminal justice, everything's failed that person. They've failed that. Those very people, those politicians failed that person and the family. But guess what? You know, per, people like that, there's thousands of them out there. They're not in jail. They're not in uh, health, mental health facilities. They're out there. They're living next door. You see what goes on in you know, Manhattan and places you never saw this kind of stuff before. And you see, you know, you see what, what you know, what goes on. Well, I mean, everybody, you know, uh, you know, it's tragic. The man lost his life. But you know what? You know, a cat's got nine lives. He probably had about 900 lives leading yeah. up to that day. Well, you know, you talk about the old, the old chicken, which came first, the chicken or the egg. And in this instance, is this guy mentally ill because he's a criminal? Or is he a criminal because he's mentally ill? Or all criminals mm -hmm. have a certain level of mental illness because they're usually abusing drugs, usually abusing alcohol. Right. I mean, if you're on medication, you need to take PCP instead. I mean, whose fault is that, you know? Right, right. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tragic. It's sad. And it doesn't look good. Uh, but what's the alternative? There's well, the, the alternative is a lot of additional bad ideas, right. like violence interrupters that are social workers. Let's bring them to violent situations where someone's off their meds and has a knife or has a gun. Mm -hmm. Let's bring them. You think they're going to be more successful in de-escalating a situation than trained police officers? Right. I mean, put in Philadelphia, put someone with a PhD that's a psychologist or psychiatrist in the back of that radio car. And tell me what would have changed. He would have been running away. That that person, probably, the man who died has probably been in front of psychologists and psychiatrists a hundred times before. Right. And, and, and what happened? Nothing. It just, it's just a revolving, uh, you know, door of just going here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dusted them off, putting them back out. And then in the end, it's the cop's fault. Yeah. Nobody takes responsibility. The family, the person himself, any of these politicians making all the rules. You know, what about the neighbors that called 911 on them and have to deal with this every day? What about all that? Career criminal, you know, and, uh, yeah. you know, I, I used to teach criminal justice. I taught it at a college for 10 and a half years. And there was a, um, one of the books we used on corrections, I taught a course on corrections. And it was making an argument that someone who commits three felonies shouldn't be considered a career criminal because if a regular person has three jobs. That's not considered a career. I just didn't get the correlation to that. Right. Okay. Yeah. How are you comparing 
someone who's on the straight and narrow working jobs with someone who's committing three violent felonies and comparing the word career right. with, with that. It just, no, some and of these say, ideas are just so outrageous. Well, that, when you say, you know, uh, committing three violent felonies, no, he was arrested for three violent felonies. Right. How many I don't think he was in church the rest, you know, he was in church the rest of the time, uh, you know what I mean? Or at work. Um, that's the thing. We, we get caught up, uh, you know, in, in saying things like, well, you know, he only got arrested, you know, this once or twice, you know, but how many times, you know, you know, did he do things and didn't get caught for? Yeah. I mean, you got to realize that, that, you know, to be a career criminal, you have to try, you have to consistently go out there and do bad things. Um, anybody could wake up and make a mistake, but there's special people out there that go out and, 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 you know, uh, prey on other human beings. Absolutely. You know, for whatever. Anything from rape, robbery to murder to you know drug dealers that, that for profit. There's people that are out there that are just uh, need to be in a different place other than uh, your next door neighbor. You know. Yes, um, that that room at Taksaki or Elmira or an attic right. or it seems perfect for them. Reserved for them. But you know uh, that's where you have to be. Yeah, and there's just no way around it. I don't care how crowded the jails are. Uh, so what do we do? We put people like that in motels now. Is that the answer? That's what that's what they're doing. Yeah, no, I know. I know. The Upper West Side, which is one of the more, most affluent neighborhoods in New York City, and by the way, one of the most liberal, they're now screaming bloody murder because they're loading these hotels. Right. Yeah. With mentally ill and people just released from Rikers Island. Yeah. And the, it changes the whole the whole neighborhood. You know, people urinating on the street, going through garbage, Horrible. You know, wandering around. You know, intimidating people. And you know, and, and the police at the same time, you're taking uh, the teeth away from the police. Right. You know? You're taking all their tools away right. that they used to use to be able to deal with these problems. You, you would know? think that if it's happening in places like that, or places where some of these politicians actually live or go, that they would even look at them and say, "Listen, we we can't have this. It's just too far. It's too much now." It's one thing when it happened in Brooklyn or the Bronx or, you know, up in, you know, uh, upper Manhattan, but when it's happening in, you know, you know, like, you know, uh, high class places now, oh my God, you know, I mean, the horror of it all. Well, and, you know, something like they, when they start coming back from their second homes in Montauk and the Hamptons and up in uh, Woodstock and places, all these other places, yes. and they start coming back to the city after this COVID thing's over. You're going to see them screaming bloody murder at what their neighborhoods have become. Yeah. Maybe uh, some of these community members will support the police so that their politicians will realize the error in their ways and maybe try to make some changes that support the police. You know? So this, this is really what we, I mean, we got a little bit off on a tangent here, but I really wanted to you, for you to talk about, you know, your, yeah, no, like I said, I think it's, Everybody lose, even even the cops lose. You know, you know how it is. The anti crime was like a promotion without taking the test. Yeah, it was a great gig. It was fun. It was exciting. You did great work. Guys were self motivated. The camaraderie with all of us. You know, you know, we went to each other's weddings. Our wives were friends. You know, it, my, my kids grew up calling my partner uncle. You know, they, 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 that's how it was. And it was a great incentive for guys that wanted to become detectives or, or move on to some sort of investigative or even become boss. They had that background. It was, it, it was really important stuff. It was good stuff. And 
And now what? It really is a morale killer for the cops, the active cops that want to go out and, and do good things and work hard. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there is a unit on the police department or was a unit on the police department that prepared you better for being a detective than anti-crime. Because you made all types of arrests, guns, robberies, burglaries, rape arrests, GLAs, right? Assaults. You made all types of arrests. And most of the time you made them with your eyes. Yes. Observation. You watched the street, you know. You you watched someone's behavior. You watched them walk into a side street, following somebody. Right. Self-initiated stuff that you learned on the job. But, yeah. you know, you did get taught by senior members of anti-crime or the board. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, you know. Right? They yeah. passed that on. But now there isn't that – there's no one in anti-crime. So there's no one to pass that type of legacy of learning how to work yeah. in clothes goes on to the new cops. I and I don't know how you get it back, you know. Well, I think they're going to have to cave. And, well, when they, when they get rid of this idiot mayor uh, who's just a parasite. Yes, uh, you know, maybe the next mayor will say we're going to bring back anti-crime, you know. Yeah. But, uh, I can only hope, you know. You know what they'll do? They'll just name it something else. That's the police, the way the police department does something. Yeah. Tactical no, I... Unit 1, Tactical Unit 2, you know. Yeah. They won't name it anti-crime because that, that'll be a bad. The special be... unit headquarters that came up with all the Ackermans and different uh, right. Olive Brass didn't even know what it stood for and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. We, we, I was joking with someone today that teaches the de-escalation of force training. We said, let's put community affairs, the borough guys, and the academy people together. They can come up with the solution. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, but there's a thing called the real world out there. I guess forgot about that, you know. Minor detail. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, they have all these feel-good units, you know. And, yeah. or, you know it drives me crazy when I see cops dancing, cops singing. That's, you know, no, that, that's stuff. not a cop, man, you know? Right. But the store owner would rather you have, you, you know, out there protecting him from getting robbed other than telling him to lock his door at night and leave a light on and hand him a coloring book to his kid. Right, right. And they, there has to be the police out there. Yeah, that all that other stuff's good stuff. You know, it has its, it has its uh, you know, part in, in, in the scheme of things. But you have to have the police out there. You know, well, I remember even in the '90s when they first started what was known as CPOP. Remember right. that? Yes. CPOP. And the, the CPOP cops would be taking kids to Yankee games as the radio would be rocking, and be like, "We can use them here," you know. And they're at a Yankee yeah. game, you know, drinking yeah. a big tall boy beer with the yeah. community, you know. Yeah, no, that's great. But you know, what about what's really going on? You know, and, and you know what? A lot of people. They, they don't really like they boy they want it's the we're the police they're not and we are so right, right. you know it, it's uh well these days they find they find arrogance in that we say we're the police I mean the famous and well-loved captain Tunnock I'm sure you heard of him from Manhattan North that was his favorite expression after all we're the police you know yeah say that all the time yeah you may not like it you don't have to like it. I mean don't I mean but we arrest people we write them summons we tell them what to do and what not to do at times and people don't like that but it's the way it is you know what we you know people grow up differently you know maybe they grow up they they're worried about their mom their dad their big brother you know the school teacher the, the football coach uh, they're worried about the priest in the neighborhood or or whatever they the neighbors are going you know they're worried something deters them from from uh, doing bad things. 
but there's those people that don't have any of those deterrents. Well, you know, Mike, absolutely. And and, you know, something there is, there is a whole area to have interaction with cops. Not every cop is a, is a uh, warrior on the street. Let's face it. Right. I understand that. But there's people that go out there and I'll mention it again. I don't know if you know him, Pat Russo, who started the NYPD uh, kids and boxing program. Fantastic program. And get great stuff. I agree. It's great stuff. And, you know, up in the 3-4 precinct, uh, a guy named uh, John Moynihan started the um, the baseball uh, league up there in Washington Heights. Right, yes. And they have, like, tremendous success stories in how they got involved yes. with these kids in the community. Some of these kids have come on the – I think Fausto Pachado was, you know, was the chief of patrol. I think, yes, he was, okay. he, I think he was one of those kids. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah, so you know, you have these tremendous success stories, and that at that level, that's where you do need the community to be friends with the police to help the police to yeah. things. And, that, and, and it's that's very important, but you still have to have that element of police to deal with the unreachable. Let's say yes. Okay, I think they say what like less than ten percent of the job are arrest oriented, right? right? And the rest are pushing that five hundred million pounds of paper that you guys generate. Yes, <laughs> and the overtime slips, and you know all yeah, that other right. stuff. Right. So why don't we get why don't we get into your uh, anti-crime career? I, I you wrote me a little blurb here, and you got into the six seven precinct in 1986, and anti-crime in 1989. Tell us about the six seven precinct in uh, in 1989. Uh, 1989. It was it was a very busy place. Um, we. Probably did in the neighborhood in the area of about 60 murders, you know, 300 shootings and several thousand robberies during that time period in that one command. Uh, we were, like per I said, year, early, talking per year. Per year, yes. Yeah, per year. And we were, we were not confined. For the most part, we were in that neighborhood. Right. Um, which, you know, like any other neighborhood in the city has smaller, like, neighborhoods uh, within it. You know, right. this section is called the East 90s. This is the 50s. This is the Vanderveer, you know, whatever. There was different. Is there sections. a lot of uh, housing developments in the 60s? There's none. 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 And what is, all... the, uh, what is the makeup uh, ethnically, racially in the 60s? Um, it was, it was mo- you know, mostly black neighborhood. Most of the people were from uh, the islands. The West Indies. You know, St. Lucia, Jamaica, Haiti, uh-huh. Guyana. You know, uh, uh, for the most part, you know, that's what well, most of the people were island people. Uh-huh. So um, it, it was busy. It was a lot of, lot of guns and a lot of violence in the command. And what was the, the violence and the, uh, the guns mostly uh, from the drug trade? Uh, well, it was, you know, towards the late 80s, the, uh, you know, the crack wars were really were in full swing. Uh, you had the Jamaican guys who were big with the weed and stuff and pushed out some of the traditional uh, dealers of, of the neighborhood. Um, Did they have the Jamaican posses that actually came from Jamaica? Yes. To Brooklyn? Yeah, they were, they were some serious dudes. And, um, you know, the war was on. Nobody liked their territory taken over. But when people moved in, they had to show their muscle and, and uh, push the other guy out and... You know, one thing led to another, and there was just a lot of violence, and there was yeah. a lot of uh, gangs. Not, uh, you know, not really uh, structured gangs, but a lot of every block seemed to have a gang. You know, whether it was the Fifty Third Street, you know, you know, 
all names you could imagine, you know, everybody had seemed to be in, in a gang. Um, and who track who tracked the gangs in the precinct? Was it the Rip Unit, uh, or the Crime the Squad? Yeah, mostly this was, it like was pre, mostly this was pre-gang units, pretty much. Right. The the gangs weren't really like I said. It was it wasn't as structured as it is now with a gang unit and it's Blood Crips, different set. It was more of a like I said, a, a little region or a street. Um, and you know, maybe we had some intel. Like when I got in a rip, we kept some intel on some guys and some guys who we knew we identified uh, as being in a certain gang and stuff like that. But I would say mostly the rip guys were were. were the ones who really started to compile. Um, and just for our audience, RIP uh, back then stood for Robbery Investigation Program. That's correct. And someone got the idea that most robbers live and commit robberies in the precinct in which they live. They're lazy. They don't want to travel outside. So they came yeah. up with the idea that if we generate all these photos, and these are actually like wet photos back then. Yes, yeah. Because there was no computer photos. yeah. yeah. And we collected these mug books. Remember the mug books? Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And yeah. if someone stole a photo, you were like ready to kill them. Why do I open that photo, right? And then you would actually sometimes have to go to one police plaza when you didn't have a photo. And I used to love that because I was a rip sergeant. I'd lose the detective for the whole day. Because yeah. he's driving down to downtown Manhattan during rush hour. There's yeah. a lot of, you know, things. To, well, that, that, was to our sun, that was our Sunday job. Sunday yeah. morning day talk. If it's yeah, if it, it was, but quiet, shoot down, down, shoot back. Yeah. Right, but would someone need think of how antiquated that is, right? I know. Having to drive to get a damn photo. Yeah. And then sometimes wait online because they were so busy, right? I know, yeah. The antiquated system. I remember when they first switched and they're saying everyone's gonna get a workstation and a computer. I was like, no way. Yeah. No way is this police department going for that money. Right. And they yeah. probably got the money from the feds. I would think so, yeah.